All right, well, good evening once again. Thank you, JT, for reading our sermon text. Uh, hopefully you were able to see, I know it's a little dim in here uh, during some of the readings, so if you uh, weren't able to, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 11, so you're welcome to turn your Bibles there now. And for future reference also, we have Bibles in the back on those bookshelves, on those carts, and so if you don't bring a Bible, uh, feel free to help yourselves to those. And of course, we live in the cell phone generation, so you know nobody's going to judge you if you pull out a cell phone. Uh, you might be texting, but you can also look at your Bible, that's okay. We allow that kind of thing here. Um, but we will be looking at the book of Acts uh, for most of our times together here on Wednesdays. And as JT just read for us a second ago, we start tonight by looking, uh, of all places, in the first chapter, right? Good place to begin. Uh, we read the first 11 verses of Acts. And the reason that we want to look at the book of Acts together is, uh, as a church family, like I said, we have a chance here to gather um, in the middle of the week. We have a chance to, to live Sunday to Sunday and yet be reminded here again of, of who we are. And if you worship with us on Sundays, uh, then you know that Rob, our lead pastor, um, done a great job coming off a vision series of really reminding us of who we are locally here at Coral Ridge, what God has been faithful to do here at Coral Ridge uh, for decades. Uh, the way he's brought us up to this point, and hopefully by God's grace, the way that he will continue to move us forward into ministry uh, here in this local community. And I think in that spirit, the book of Acts is also uh, a powerful and a, and a, a very helpful reminder um, of not just our history locally, but also uh, our roots universally. Our roots uh, with the church universal, the saints who have been gathered from the four winds uh, from the beginning of time. God has been at work building his church, yes, here at Coral Ridge, uh, but we know also beyond that, uh, around the world, that he has been gathering his people from the beginning of time, and that we at Coral Ridge have this unspeakable privilege of being built on this foundation, uh, that we are continuing the story uh, of Christ's church birthed 2,000 years ago, uh, in which we get to read about in the book of Acts. And so Acts reminds us of our identity. It reminds us of our history. Uh, it really is our family history, if we could believe that. Uh, and we'll see that through many, many stories that we have a chance um, to look at uh, together. Here, though, uh, in chapter 1, I want to just kind of point out a couple things. Uh, there's three specific things here in Acts 1 that I think are always helpful for us to be reminded of. Uh, you see three things here in the first 11 verses. You have the authenticity of the Christian faith. You have the authority of God over the church. And then you have the ascension of Jesus. Uh, the authenticity of the Christian faith, the authority of God over the church, and the ascension of Jesus. And we'll see why the ascension of Jesus is such, such good news for us. But let's look at those kind of in turn. So the authenticity of the Christian faith. Look at verses 1 through 3. Again, we're in Acts 1. And if you notice, when JT read, uh, the author, which we know to be Luke, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. So he says, in the first book, that I wrote. 
So if you buy books on Amazon, right, you can also see kind of what has the author written, right? They kind of scroll for you there. What else has he written, okay? Well, we know that Luke is the author of the book of Acts, but he's also written a previous book, the book bearing his name, the Gospel of Luke. And so take your Bible and flip back for a second to the Gospel of Luke and look at the very first chapter. You look back at Luke's gospel, this is crucial to kind of consider these two introductions together, okay? So look at verse one, it says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also. So Luke is now speaking of himself, right? It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time, to now write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That name comes up again. For you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now you go back to Acts, and here we now have the the, the progression. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Christ, or Jesus, began to do and teach. And so it's helpful to kind of take these two introductions together, specifically what you heard read in Luke. And the reason it's important is because if you noticed, Luke is establishing why he even bothers to write this at all. And he reminds us that there were eyewitnesses themselves around when he's writing. And there had even previously been eyewitness accounts that had been published and were circulating. And not only were these, these present, but they were actually with him, okay? And so Luke, as this educated person, a, a good historian, okay? Uh, we know him to be a physician by trade. He himself doesn't want to just embrace sort of urban legend. He doesn't want to embrace, you know, stories, fanciful myths or notions that he's heard about Christ but he wants to actually know the truth himself. He wants to do the investigative work and make sure what he's been told um, is true. And he establishes this very early on in, in, in the way that he opens up his book. And he says he's doing the same thing for Theophilus. Why? It says that Theophilus might have certainty about the things that he's been taught. So Theophilus himself is also then obviously a Christian, okay? He's been taught these things. And he now wants to know, am I just holding on to kind of, you know, fanciful myths, sort of vague spirituality, or did this actually happen? Did this man Christ Jesus actually rise from the dead? Was was God in the flesh actually among us? And so we could probably understand Theophilus to be some kind of well-to-do patron, well-to-do person who finances Luke's project. Okay? It's not altogether dissimilar from today, right? You have, you have uh, scientists, you have researchers, right? You have to go out and pursue grants for their work, right? Well, the same thing is true here with Luke, okay? And so Theophilus is underwriting this effort, and he wants to know exactly what Luke has found. And see, this is significant because what it does then is it puts us as the reader then, it puts us in a, at a crossroads, really, We can't just write Luke off. We can't just write Acts off. We can't just write the New Testament off or the Gospels off um, as religious propaganda. We can't just write them off as, you know, maybe there was an inkling, a kernel of truth 
that then this kind of religion and superstition, you know, was built around and now we have what we have today. No, it actually forces us to come to a very real decision in our lives. We have to actually ask ourselves, did this happen? And it puts us at that crossroads of saying either this truly happened in the course of history, and Luke is giving us history to the detail, or he just simply fabricated uh, chapter after chapter. He took a myth and allowed it to kind of grow to, to even more mythical proportions, and now we have this religion of Christianity, but whether or not it actually was rooted in historical events, it's anybody's guess. That's for the, the scholars and the history channel and the pundits uh, to debate. But you see, that doesn't really make sense. It's not really logical. And as we'll go deeper into Acts, that we'll see that there's just painstaking attention given to geographical details. There's painstaking attention to the events that happen. There's firsthand accounts to some of these journeys and such. And it, it just, it doesn't seem like a fabrication. It doesn't seem like it would be the work of a myth maker or of somebody who is just spewing propaganda. But also, if we take what we just read seriously, the other factor is that, well, there were eyewitnesses around. And Luke is basically saying what we kind of just admitted, is that Luke goes, no, no, no. I myself could come with similar skepticism. I've seen the other accounts. I've heard the other accounts. Think about this. Luke, in the, in the book of Acts, they're written 20, maybe 30 years after the death of Christ, perhaps even a little bit less. And so there's literally people walking around who would have been walking around when Christ was there as well. And they could have invalidated Luke's claims. They could have, you know, uh, they could have popped the, the bubble uh, before it even, even started. And yet, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And what Luke does is he puts his cards on the table and he says, no, 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 I've unturned every rock. I've run this by everyone possible. I've looked at the other accounts and now here is mine and I want you to yourself bring your skepticism to it. Bring the magnifying glass to it. And what you'll find out is that it's true. And this is what you see. Look at verse 3. We're back in Acts 1. Look at verse 3. It says, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering. By what? By many proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You see, all the while there's people present who had walked those same roads, who had been around. And we sometimes, I think we sometimes act as if um, skepticism is maybe like a modern invention. Uh, it's this modern notion. The Bible teaches us right here, no, no, no. Skepticism is the nature of the human heart. Every time Christ appeared post-resurrection, what did he have to do? He had to get rid of their doubts. You know, touch the wound. You know, watch me eat a fish. <laughs> Look, see for yourself. This is real. You see, skepticism isn't just this invention of the modern mind where we've become so educated and so sophisticated and so much smarter than the ancients 
that we go, ah, I don't know if this really happened, a guy named Jesus walking around in Nazareth. No, no, that was the very same posture of the people back then as well. There was skepticism, there were doubts. And yet Christ says, come and see. And Luke tells us that Christ appeared and, and over the course of 40 days offered proof after proof after proof of his resurrection. And so I say all of that because, see, this is the posture that we must take. You see, there's, uh, Tim Keller, pastor in New York, says this uh, best. He talks about how many people come to Christianity for a host of reasons. And if we were to survey this room tonight, there might be different reasons why you came to Christianity. Your testimony would have different inflections. And that's wonderful. This is a tapestry. This is a mosaic of God's grace here, this room tonight. He has called you um, from various backgrounds, and he's called you through various means and methods. But unfortunately, a lot of times today, Christianity is presented first and foremost, maybe for its, uh, its benefits, let's say, right? Uh, come to Christianity for the inspiration that it offers. Come to Christianity for the strength that it gives us uh, throughout the day. Um, come to Christianity for the purpose that it gives your life. Are all those things good? Absolutely. Does Christianity offer those things? Without a doubt. But we first, this is what Luke's getting at, I think, in, his, in the book of Acts and in his gospel. He says, the first reason we come to Christianity, though, and this is what Tim Keller reminds us of, the first and foremost reason we come to Christianity is it's true. So it's true. Because unlike other religions that might be predicated upon spiritual knowledge, unlike other religions that might be predicated upon lifestyles and behavioral modification or attaining some kind of enlightenment or inner peace, Christianity is rooted firmly in historical events. Christianity in that regard is not a religion. It's not a spiritual program. It is an acknowledgement and a banking of one's life on a historical event that happened in reality that we can touch and see. That God himself walked on this earth in the person of Christ and altered the course of history forever. And so we come to Christianity first and foremost because it's true. And if it's true, and this is what Keller says, if it's true, then what will follow? Well, all those things we just mentioned. If it's true, then our lives will be filled with purpose. If it's true, then my goodness, what strength have we just found? If it's true, what hope have we just found? We found the only hope imaginable. And so the first thing that we see here in this chapter is that the, the authenticity of the Christian faith. But we also see here uh, the authority of God over the church. Look at verses six through eight. Again, we're in Acts 1. Look at verses 6 through 8. Basically, what we had read there from JT a second ago was this disciples' question. This question by the disciples where they come before the risen Christ and they ask him, will you finally, will you finally get things together? Will you finally now restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, my wife and I have, we have two little kids, uh, they're five and three, and you'll know that uh, one of the most endearing yet exhausting thing about little children is the incessant questioning. 
I mean, the perpetual questioning to the very minutia of detail uh, about every avenue of life. Uh, and it's innocent and it's sweet and, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's hilarious to the questions that kids ask, right? Uh, are absolutely hilarious. But you literally feel like you live in one of those, like, you know, movie scenes where you're at, like, a, a steel table and you're under the hot lamp and you're being interrogated, right, uh, about your day or about, like, why things, you know, why the clouds move or, you know, questions that we don't have answers to necessarily uh, and all these obvious types of things, right? But, um, but sometimes the questions become then also just painfully petty. Uh, and the, the one we always get is, you know, uh, Daddy, can I have a snack? Well, yeah, give me, give me a second. I'll get you a snack. And then two seconds later, can I have a snack? Well, yeah, I mean, it takes me a minute to walk to the kitchen. Uh, can I have a snack, right? And it just goes over and over and over again. And, of course, the question is innocent. The question is sweet and endearing. But the reason the question is even asked time and time again is because in the mind of a child, they can't even fathom that you might have something more important, right, or more immediately uh, in need of your attention than providing a cup of goldfish, right? I mean, to a child's mind, that is precedent, that is paramount. There is nothing more important than goldfish, especially if they're the flavor-blasted kind, right? They have the powder on them. They're awesome, okay? Go get some after the service. Um, but they can't even fathom there's something more important than, than that. Well, you have a similar kind of one-track-mindedness here from the disciples. They ask this question, and you, and you, and you see that sort of one-track mind on display. And they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus responds by saying, it's not for you to know the times, the seasons, that the Father has fixed by his authority. And so in one way, he kind of brushes them aside, which is the bad news, if you will. You know, oh, we wanted to know. But on the other hand, he gives them the good news and says, but I tell you what, you don't need to know the times, the places, but my Father's about to gift you his Holy Spirit and wait and see what will happen. And so at one level, their question sort of, it sort of betrays the, the, the atmosphere of that time. The disciples are looking for what we know many were looking for in that day. They're looking for an earthly king who's going to come and defeat the Romans, going to set things right, going to put Israel back on kind of the global center stage. But what do we have? In Christ, we have not an earthly king, at least not how they imagine it, but they have a servant suffering servant, who didn't just come to knock heads together, who didn't come to, on the giant war horse to, weigh, you know, uh, to lay waste to the Romans, but a suffering servant who came and, of all things, died, but in order to defeat a greater enemy, not Rome, but Satan, but sin and death, and then to offer the spoils freely those who believe. But this momentary kind of misunderstanding still plagues the disciples, and they basically say, will you now finally restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, will Christ finally build things on their terms? Will he finally kind of put them in the place that they deserve? 
They're thinking to themselves, hey, we tried the other thing. We, I mean, the love your neighbor stuff, the turn the other cheek stuff. My goodness, you were crucified. Can we now get on with the kingly stuff? With the, the kicking butt and the, you know, putting us where we should be on the thrones and, and ruling over the nations? Can we get on with, with, with that part of the story? And we kind of laugh the disciples off, and yet, don't we, don't we do the same thing in our own lives? And we know that God made us in his image, and yet how often do we try to make God into our image? And it's true with every area of our lives. We want to build kingdoms. We want to build things where we're put on center stage. Uh, and we can do it even in the best intended places. We can make even the church sort of about us and not about Christ. We can make the church about serving ourselves and our agendas and not about serving the world and serving others. And you see that reflected in the disciples' question. It's very disciple-focused. It's very Israel-focused. It's very me-focused, if you will, if you were a disciple at that time. But if it's anything, it's small. It's small. The vision that the disciples are asking for, the, the, the result, rather, is it's small. And Christ wants to exceed, well exceed that. Um, Wyatt, my son, who's five, like I mentioned, um, a couple years ago, we took him to uh, the circus down at the AAA, uh, American Airlines Arena, where the Heat play. And I think it was the Barnum Bailey Circus, if I'm not mistaken. So it's, you know, it's the, the big deal. And one of, my, <laughs> one of my favorite memories ever is we're sitting there in the stadium Okay, however many people at AAA seats, Scott would probably know, you know, the arena's packed, okay? And it's the circus, Barnum and Bailey's, greatest show on earth, okay? And there's literally this one, <laughs> this one exhibit where there's a guy on a motorcycle on fire riding the motorcycle in the sky on a tightrope across the arena. Think about that for a second. There's a guy on a, I would never even get on a motorcycle if it's parked, okay? It's just not in my DNA. No interest in motorcycles, okay? I like doors, I like AC, I like roofs, okay? I like cup holders. Um, never gonna get on a motorcycle, right? This guy, he's riding a motorcycle lit on fire in the sky on a tightrope across the arena. It's the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen in my entire life. It's mind-blowingly preposterous, okay, what's happening. And my son, my son, Wyatt, well, we had packed him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because we didn't want to pay for the concessions. We're cheap. And we packed him the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And he does not divert his gaze from this peanut butter and jelly sandwich. The entire time, this guy is riding an inferno in the sky across the tightrope. I mean, we're like, Wyatt. Why, why? Look at this guy. Look at this guy. And just fixated on that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I mean, there just was no diverting his gaze. And I thought to myself, though, this is the disciples. I mean, this is what the, what's happening here with the disciples. Christ is saying, it's not that your question's silly, will you restore the kingdom in Israel? But they're asking this question after the resurrection. They're asking this question after the God in the flesh has walked among them, after the, 
I mean, the, the cosmic order is beginning to be restored. Atonement for sin is made. God is bringing humanity back into fellowship with him. Uh, he's setting all things right. The kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, behold, I'm making all things new. He's turning back the curse. The snow is melting in Narnia, to use Lewis's great phrase. And the disciples go, and now's the time, right? Now's the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to, to Israel. And Jesus, you can almost hear him respond with a little bit of a, of a chuckle. He just goes, Peter, I mean, expand your horizons. Expand your horizons. I haven't come just to restore the kingdom to Israel. I've come to restore the cosmic order. I've come to see the glory of the Lord cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. I've come to set all things right. And Christ tells him though, but the good news is that you will be my witnesses. But where does he say he'll be, they'll be his witnesses? Well, first in Israel, Jerusalem, Judea, but then eventually to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, he says, no, 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 we've, I've come to set up the kingdom, but we're taking this show on the road. <laughs> this thing isn't going to stop at Israel. This thing's going to go to the four corners of the globe. And it's almost as if he's telling the disciples, I mean, he feels, in a sense, bad for them. And he goes, oh, you, just, you can't even imagine what's in store. You can't even imagine what I'm going to do. Uh, but buckle your seatbelts because it's going to be a wild ride, and he has such bigger and brighter and more grandiose plans than they had, could even, even imagine. And the reason I think it's such good news for us, if, you, kind of if you're following the, the order here, so we have the authenticity of the, of the Christian faith, now we have the, the authority of God over the church, and particularly in the book of Acts, we have the authority of the Holy Spirit over the church. What we'll see is that though Acts is written by Luke, and though uh, Peter and Paul, the main kind of uh, characters. It's really the, the Holy Spirit who's the center stage. He's the main player in the book of Acts. And that's such good news for us because what does it tell us even here at Coral Ridge? Well, thanks be to God, we have a new day that's dawned. And we have new vision. And we have excitement and hope for the future. And God seems to be blessing us and doing incredible things here. And he's been so faithful to us. And we're so grateful. And the encouraging reminder is that all of the plans that we have, all the vision that we have, doesn't rest in our strength, thankfully, but it rests in the strength of God. And he's actually already promised that his Holy Spirit will continue to build his church. And that he's going to do even greater things than we can imagine or plan. Uh, and that's wonderful news. And so we don't, we don't stop planning. We don't stop uh, looking to the future. But we do it with the, the, the confidence and assurance that the Holy Spirit will do the work in and through us. Um, and that's incredible, and it's hope-giving. But then lastly, so we have the, the authenticity of the Christian faith, the authority of God of the church, but then lastly, if you look in verses 9 through 11, and this is where we'll, we'll close for tonight, we have the ascension of Jesus for our good. If you noticed, after he says all these things, uh, they're looking up, and, uh, and he's lifted up, and a cloud takes him out of their sight, and the angels say that he will return in the same way that he's coming, uh, or that he's, that he's going. And then prior to that, though, we have Christ reminding them that he will give them his Holy Spirit. Take a look real quick. I know we're running out of time here. Look at John 14 just for a second. Look at John 14. This is helpful. 
Look at John 14. Look at um, verses 1 through 7. John 14 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, but believe also in me. This is Christ talking. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Christ said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. And then jump down to verse 15. And he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And here's the, here's the point. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. And then flip over just two more chapters. Look at John 16. Uh, look at verse 5. John 16, verse 5, Christ says, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So he's basically saying, look, I'm going to have to go away eventually. And they get sorrowful. And you see it again in Acts. But what does verse 7 say? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is amazing if you think about this. Verse 7, I tell you the truth. This is Christ talking. It is to your advantage. Wow. It's to my advantage that Christ goes away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And this is amazing. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Spirit will do the work. Um, concerning sin, verse 9, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but when you cannot hear them now, when the spirit of truth comes, though, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come, for he will glorify me, and will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is great. All the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and give it to you. Isn't that amazing? Christ says, all the Father possesses is his, but through the Holy Spirit, he will give it to you. That's incredible. And that's the very same thing he promises the disciples. You see, he says, I must ascend to the Father. I must ascend to heaven. And it's good news for us, and we'll close with this thought, it's good news for us in these two ways. The first way is because if Christ goes to the Father, he will send the third person of the Trinity. He'll send the Spirit. And the Spirit will now live inside of us. And the Spirit will now empower us individually and enrich our lives individually. But he'll also inhabit and empower and enrich his church. And he will do things, amazing things in his church for his glory. In fact, the gates of hell will never prevail against his church because the Holy Spirit will work in and through it. But it's the second part, the reason it's such good news, is because of the fact that if Christ ascends to the Father, it means the whole work of redemption is now done. See, it wasn't just his perfect life. It wasn't just his crucifixion. It wasn't just his resurrection. It was also the ascension 
of Jesus. Where? Hebrews tells us to the right hand of the Father. That after making purification for sins, Christ Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that is the best news that we could ever hear because in Christ sitting down and ascending to the throne of heaven, it tells us, tells us powerfully that the work of salvation, the work of redemption is finished once and for all. Your sins have been put away, atonement has been made, reconciliation with the Father is possible. And so Christ Jesus, the Lamb, the Son of God, our perfect high priest, sits down and he rests and he now says to you, you're my beloved child. All the Father has is mine and now I give it to you. The great words in the song we sang, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. You see, Christ Jesus on the throne next to the Father is our advocate. And he's constantly making intercession for us. He's constantly advocating for us before the throne and reminding the courtrooms of heaven that though we've sinned, he's made atonement. That though we've run from him, he's brought us back. And the work of salvation from first to last is his, and it's finished, and now it's been given to us by his grace. Let's pray together.